we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Chris Kotnor, executive producer of the DSR Network's family of podcasts. I wanted to tell you about an exciting opportunity we have for a podcast producer. Our ideal applicant will have a deep interest and background in international and domestic issues, podcast production experience, and our desire to help grow the podcast. The person will also take the lead on promoting programming on social media and potentially could co-host podcasts, must be comfortable working with very high-level guests worldwide, including current government officials, strong academic background in political science, international affairs, or public policy required, excellent writing skills, a familiarity with WordPress, the Riverside podcasting platform, and a willingness to do whatever it takes is essential. If you're interested in learning more about this opportunity, please email us at info at the dsrnetwork.com. That's info at the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C., I'm joined also today in Washington, D.C., in different various locations, by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. How are you doing today, Rosa? I'm very good. Thank you, David. By Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, who's in an airport or something. How are you doing, Corey? I am doing exceedingly well, David, although you're right. I am in the Tampa airport. Well, that can only mean a lovely vacation at CENTCOM. And uh, we are joined also by another representative of Georgetown University, our friend Angela Stent, Russia expert and author. How are you doing, Angela? Fine, thank you. And what we want to talk about is the meeting that took place this week between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping in Moscow and try to figure out what it all meant. We may also want to talk about the parallel discussion that took place in Kyiv 
with the Japanese prime minister. But let's start with Russia. Let's start with Moscow. Let's start with Angela. When I look at this, I see Xi Jinping advancing his goal to be the alternative to the United States and sort of global geopolitical competition. And I see Vladimir Putin appearing as the junior partner in the role of a come and hug me, mommy, I'm having a bad time in Ukraine relationship with Xi. What am I getting wrong? I don't think you're getting too much wrong. I mean, Xi Jinping is trying to have it both ways, supporting Russia, but then also trying to appear as a peacemaker, right? They've come out with a peace plan, which is extremely general, but trying to play both sides of it because he's still, I think, trying to repair relations with the Europeans, if not with the US. But for Putin, you know, indicted uh, as a war criminal on Friday, and then he gets on Monday this great boost uh, with Xi Jinping, the optics, um, all the fanfare, the elaborate praise of each other. And even though he clearly is the junior partner and he is the supplicant, it doesn't look bad for a man who the US and the West have tried to isolate. What, what do you think, Corey? Yeah, I have the same reaction. It seems to me that Putin is clearly the supplicant, but that at the same time, Xi Jinping didn't give him what he really needed, which is long-term energy commitments or weapons for the war in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, there seems to be no question about that. Rosa, what was your take? Yeah, my take was this was pretty one-sided in that, you know, Russia didn't, in some ways it actually highlighted Russia's weakness at this point, you know, that that it was very much, the benefits were flowing primarily in one direction, and that was from Russia to China, that Russia's in a position where it has been so weakened by international isolation, sanctions, et cetera, that it was offering all sorts of goodies to China. And China wasn't actually giving a whole lot back other than sort of standing there and smiling. So I think the the good news and the bad news are, you know, the, the, the bad news is that this does, this is yet another thing that manages to make China, uh, allows China to show off its growing power and influence is the bad news. The, the good news in some ways is that this also really highlights, as I said, Russia's relative weakness. And as, as, as Angela and Corey said, Russia didn't get a whole lot out of this other than Xi standing there and smiling. Uh, you know, they didn't get weapons. Uh, China continues to say, nuclear weapons must not be used, et cetera. So, so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot in this for Russia. It was a probably pretty poor consolation for its general isolation and for Putin being granted a war criminal by the ICC. We don't know that he did, they didn't get weapons. This they is true. Didn't, there might be they, secret. They didn't, yeah. yeah, they didn't announce that, the, that China was going to supply weapons, but we have no idea. They had four hours by themselves on Monday. And the other thing is, you know, you look at the communique that they put out, which I read carefully, and there they say nuclear war was never be fought and, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which is repeating the P5 language there. But Putin immediately thereafter was making threats saying that, that Ukraine was now getting weapons that included bent uranium and, and he immediately raised the nuclear threats again. So I'm not sure how far that goes. I mean, spent uranium can be used in just you know, shell casings and things like that. And, and so oh, it sounds worse than it is, I think. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I do think, Corey, we've all, everybody has weighed in and come to the conclusion this is not so good for Putin. And he doesn't, he doesn't look very good. What's his next move? I mean, China's really the only card he has to play. 
you know, he can't do a meeting like this every week. He doesn't really have, he can't now travel to most places because he runs the risk of being arrested. It'll be really interesting to see if he genuinely does run the risk to be arrested. He's going to go to South Africa or is scheduled to go to South Africa for the BRICS meeting. And that may produce a solidarity given that, you know, South Africa is a signatory of the International Criminal Court treaties, but it may not. This is going to be a really important test about Russia and China's influence with the global South, the developing world. No question about that. I think the South Africans have already indicated they aren't going to throw him in the slammer. But other than midnight visits to Mariupol and visits to places that seem to be predisposed towards Putin, it's going to be tough for him where future G20 meetings, UN meetings, other kinds of things. Don't you think, Rosa? Well, I mean, boy, I, I would like to be optimistic about the the impact of the ICC arrest warrant, but I'm not entirely. I mean, my my fear, my, my, my immediate fear when I saw the news that the arrest warrant had been issued by the ICC was it risks weakening the ICC if there's another world leader who who is a war criminal who is charged with that, who the ICC can't get and who other countries won't actually put themselves out to to arrest. Bashar al-Assad is still out there too. And the the worst thing that could happen, I mean there there are two bad things that could happen. You know, one one would be and this has always been the the anxiety about some of the debate about, you know, justice versus peace, is there a conflict? You know, one bad thing that could happen uh would be that Putin would just decide, well, I've got absolutely nothing to lose now because nobody likes me anyway and nobody ever will like me except for my my sort of kind of friend she, you know, so I'll just be even worse um, and even more intransigent. Maybe it's not really possible for him to grow more intransigent, but that's but that's one potential danger. The other potential danger is that the ICC just becomes a joke. You know, you can you can have arrest warrants for anybody, but at the end of the day, even the states that are parties to the Rome Treaty aren't actually going to put themselves out to to do anything about this, in which case What's the point of the ICC anymore? You know, it just becomes a sort of declaratory, symbolic statement that nobody takes very seriously. And, you know, needless to say, the U.S. government has been very fickle when it comes to the ICC. I suppose ambivalent would be to put it more charitably, but fickle is perhaps more accurate. We haven't been consistently supportive. We have flopped back and forth between being kind of supportive in a sort of lukewarm, half-assed way and overtly hostile. So I'm not entirely sure it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah, you're very charitable there with both of those terms. I, I, hypocritical is is hypocritical term that, that too that comes to my mind. And the president of the United States evidenced this when asked about it, and he said, "Well, we don't recognize the ICC, but it sure does says a lot about Putin that he was cited." And it was like trying to have it both ways personally believe that, you know, if we're for the rule of law, then we all got to sign up for it. But we've discussed that in the past. Angela, however, one thing we have not discussed is how it looks to the people of Russia when their leader is branded a war criminal. Does it have any effect at all? Well, so I know I'm not quite sure how much they know about this. If they're watching state-run media, yes, some of these nightly talk shows with these bombastic hosts they are discussing it, but then they're doing it and saying, you know, this is a, it's just another conspiracy against Russia. Nobody likes us. They're trying to tear us apart, gobble us up. 
So I'm not sure that it's going to have that much of an impact on the Russians that have stayed in Russia and who support the war. Obviously, for the Russians who are in Russia and don't support the war, they would take this very seriously. But this is not going to, I think, turn the tide of public opinion, particularly since those Russians that watch the state-run media know that the United States itself isn't a party to this, to the ICC, and neither, of course, as we said, are China and India. This, I think, won't, won't have much of an impact. Well, I mean, frankly, you know, the, if some Russians know what the ICC is, that will put them ahead of American audiences right. um, exactly. who would be like, what the ick? What the what is the ick? But, um, Corey, sort of moving past the ICC, another thing this week has seen is a little bit of acceleration of efforts to support Ukraine, including a statement by the U.S. that they were going to speed up the delivery of Abrams tanks and more statements by the Europeans about delivering MiGs to the to the Ukrainians. Are we fast enough yet in the delivery of arms or no? No, we are not fast enough yet, but it's wonderful news that they are speeding up because that, you know, both that what Ukrainians are suffering with the constant barrages of missile and drone attacks on apartment buildings, on schools, on power plants. So the first reason to hurry up is what Ukraine is suffering. But the second reason is because the narrative begins to take hold that this is going to be trench warfare for years, just like World War I. And that is depressing Western support for it and could even depress Ukrainian grit in fighting it. So we need to get moving. We need to get the equipment, the weapons, the ammunition into Ukrainian hands so that they can start their offensive. The Russian military has already culminated. They're not strong enough to mount an actual offensive, but they can dig in and fight defensively. And we need to help the Ukrainians blast them out of control of Ukrainian people and Ukrainian territory. What's your view on this, Rosa? Do you agree we're not getting enough weapons to them fast enough? And is that primarily then the responsibility of the U.S.? Or uh, can the Europeans pick up the slack? And should we, you know, cut the U.S. a little bit of a break since they've actually donated more aid? I do worry that we have managed to arrive, as we so often do, in sort of the worst of all possible worlds in which we are supporting the Ukrainians, except we're not really supporting them quite enough to really make a decisive difference you know, and and that that actually ends up dragging things on in a way that is not particularly good for the Ukrainians. I mean, so I, I mean, I, I basically agree with Corey. I think if we're going to support them, we should support them and we should do it fast and we should do it right. and We should be serious about it. And, you know, our, our kind of little bit by little bit dribs and drabs. Well, OK, we're not going to do that. Well, OK, maybe we'll do that a little bit. Well, OK, but not that, you know, it, it's not a great place to be. It's not particularly helpful. I still, that being said, I have the same question I've had all along, which, which is the, you know, how does this end question? Because it's very, very difficult for me to, partly because of that U.S. a little here, a little there, but not really quite enough anywhere to make a huge decisive difference. It's very hard for me to see at what moment something has changed enough to lead to a conclusion that is remotely satisfying to anybody, as opposed to 
just getting worse and worse for everybody uh, and risks of escalation continue to mount. So I, I do find that troubling because I'm not I don't it's not clear to me that anybody in the administration has a particularly clear sense of well, what are we what are we moving towards that's realistic that is going to bring about some kind of satisfactory conclusion? I'm, I'm I wish I thought that we did, but I, I don't know that we do. No, that's a good point. Angela, in terms of uh, this discussion, we often hear about when does the West lose patience? Obviously, in Russia, it's not really as driven by public opinion, and it's really when does Putin change his mind about all this? But there are powerful people around Putin. When do they change their mind? We had Jeff Sonnenfeld on here a couple of weeks ago talking about the fact that the economic sanctions were taking a much bigger toll than many, many think. What's your view studying this? Is there any sign that the the opinion around Putin that matters is shifting at all? I mean, we see, no, I think we've seen the opposite. I would say, you know, I respect Jeff Sonnenfeld a lot, but there are people who disagree with his analysis of exactly how badly the sanctions have hit Russia. And if you're living in, you know, a major city like Moscow, the restaurants are all open, the supermarkets are filled with goods. Okay, you don't have Coke anymore, but you have a Vietnamese version of it. So, and even in the countryside, people haven't really felt the pinch of the sanctions yet. It, it may be felt much more as the year goes on, and you have supply chain problems, you have the lack of spare parts, you have the lack of semiconductors. But right now, the Russian economy has come through this much better than we thought it would when the sanctions were first imposed. What we've seen is that these kind of pragmatic, technocratic people, members of the political elite in Russia, people like the governor of the central bank, Elvira Nabiulina, the head of Sberbank, Hermann Greff, all these people who were known to be, they liked interacting with Westerners, they were modernizers, and one would have thought that they would have objected to all of this, but in fact, they haven't. They've all basically gotten with the program, with the exception of just a couple of high-level people who've left, because they realize that they made this bargain with Putin a long time ago, which was that they could accumulate assets, but they shouldn't challenge what was happening politically. None of them realized that they'd be involved in a horrible war like this, and that this would in entail them losing access to their bank accounts and homes and contacts they had in the West. But they've all more or less accepted it. So we see now a situation where Putin has consolidated his power during this year of the war. And whoever does object to that, they're keeping very quiet and they're just doing essentially what they're told to do. Corey, changing the subject just a little bit, have you ever had Vietnamese Coke? No, that... <laughs> no, David, I haven't. Is it better than American Coke? No, I have no, I have no idea. I and. Just Angela brought it up, and you're very worldly, so I thought I would ask you. I have well, had Mexican Coca-Cola, and it is a lot better than American. Something about the kind of sugar they use, David. That's correct. Mexican Coca-Cola uses cane sugar, and you can actually buy Mexican Coca-Cola in the United States because so many people prefer it to American Coca-Cola, even though democracy is on the wane in Mexico. But we'll get to that in another episode. What I wanted to talk to you about was the moves that have been made this week with regard to getting Finland and Sweden into the EU. Finns are making progress. The Turks are still blocking the Swedes. 
because they're too nice, apparently, to the Kurds. And the Turks really irritate me. And so my question is, do the Turks irritate you as much as they irritate me? And what should we do about having an ally that's a pain in the ass like that? So, yes, the Turks are a particularly difficult American ally and exasperating at their willingness to do damage to the common good for their narrow interests. And yet the United States has a lot of annoying allies and the United States is an annoying ally to many of our friends. And therefore, we just got to find a way to compromise. Well, that's very interesting. And I, I do hope we devote an entire episode soon to listing America's most annoying allies, because that would that's be- That's a good idea. We should have a special episode on America's most annoying allies and everybody gets to nominate three. Yeah, no, maybe we'll we do ask that. Our, our listeners to vote. Be careful, my friends, because everybody's going to nominate us. They may, although right <laughs> this week, Israel is going to win that. Uh, who have sort of gone off the charts. But in any event, we should do that soon. Speaking of allies, however, one of our least annoying allies these days, Rosa, is Japan. And the Japanese prime minister went to Kiev and is engaging more. And in fact, one of the things that we've seen, in part because of the sense that the response of the West to Kiev is so important, to, to Russia's invasion is so important, is a shift that has broader consequences with regard to Asian allies. I'm going to ask Angela about that in a moment, because I think it has consequences for Russia. But for example, the Japanese are also spending more money on defense. And when in the past, there that has been something that was just sort of against the culture, given the history. And I'm just wondering, do you think that this is really sort of significant to see a country like Japan emerging and playing more of a leadership role? Oh, absolutely. You know, and and Japan has been so, so ambivalent, so queasy about that role for such a long time. And and to see them in a very constructive way, getting more engaged, uh, you know, they're, they're, the visit of Kashida to Ukraine the increased support for Poland, the announced intention of increasing ties with Eastern Eastern European NATO members, all of those things, I think, suggest that Japan is 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 alert to the the realignments that are occurring. You know, the realignments that have been really symbolized by Xi standing there next to Putin and has chosen which side it wants to be on and wants to stay on, and and that's that's an important thing, I think. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, Japan used to be kind of the Germany of the Pacific in the sense of the Germany of, of Schultz, the modern And Germany, Germany used to be the Japan of Europe. And yeah, and, look at the both. Yeah, well, exactly. And then now Japan is more like the Germany of the Pacific, but the old Germany, not the new well, Germany. Well, no, that's, that's not a good idea. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. well, nobody mean, wants to see the old Germany. Wait a minute. I don't mean that old. Um, (laughs) I mean, back when we thought Germany was a kind of strong ally, but sort of early Merkel or early, (laughs) early, early middle Merkel. Anyway, Angela, you know, for Russia, not only do they have to face the fact that they're not doing well in Ukraine, that it costs them a lot, that they have all of these sanctions, that the Chinese are giving them 
photo ops, but not really probably everything that they want. But they have a Pacific side, too. That's one of the reasons China was so engaged with them. And countries like Japan and South Korea are kind of leaning harder into their alliances with us for a variety of reasons. But it can't make the Russians too comfortable, can it? No, it can't. And by the way, in the communique, the Russian-Chinese communique from yesterday, they mention AUKUS and they say it's a danger and it's a provocative act. So, you know, under the late Prime Minister Abe, he tried everything he could to improve ties to Russia. He met with Putin many times. Japan wouldn't sanction Russia after 2014, always hoping to find a way to get to come to a resolution with Russia on the southern Kuril Islands and get at least some of them back. And I think the current Japanese government, has, it's a different government, Prime Minister Kishida and the, and the foreign minister, they've realized it's not happening. The new Russian constitution says Russia cannot give back territory to anybody. And so the Japanese, as we see, they're spending more on defense. They're in, you know, they're in the Quad Alliance. We've got the reconciliation with South Korea, right? This is something that also, I think, is an outcome, one of the outcomes of both the Ukraine war and of a rising China. So it's really changing some of the dynamics in Northeast Asia. And this for, for Russia is very difficult. And so they're going back to their old position of, you know, Japan is a, is a major enemy. And then the other thing the Russians don't like, of course, is the rapprochement, let's say, between NATO and our key Asian allies and the fact that NATO is going to have more of an Asian dimension. So this is all things that, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping have brought upon themselves. But it's a dynamic that cannot be to Russia's liking. Right. And long to long term consequences. I think in the interest of balance here, Corey, we talked about allies that annoy us. Among the allies that we must be just delighted with at the moment are those like the Baltics, particularly like Estonia, where uh, the prime minister today made a statement saying, you know, 2% commitment to NATO must be the floor. We're going to do 3%. We're going to do more. And there seems to be a real appetite in the Baltics, in Northern Europe, if you can, you could throw in Poland, but also in Finland, to sort of put Europe's shoulder into this thing. And they kind of are Europe's shoulder. Is this significant or are these countries too small to make a difference? There's no such thing as too small to make a difference. It matters to be shamed to hold to standard. And frontline states in America's alliances have always served that purpose. Because we can't take a policy tougher than they're willing to take, but they can take a policy tougher than we're willing to take and drag the rest of us along. And I think that's what NATO's frontline allies, and not just our frontline allies in Europe, but also the Australians have been amazing in this regard. They were the first people to call out Huawei and to persuade the rest of us not to put them in our systems. So they were willing to take a position on China and the WTO that forced everybody's hands. So it really matters to have frontline states setting a tough standard for the rest of us to follow. No question about it. I mean, Rosa, are they your favorite allies at the moment? Oh, that's a hard choice, David. But yes, they, they might be my favorite allies right now. I mean, look, obviously, if, if, you're, if you're a Baltic country, you have a very keen historical awareness of the dangers posed by Russia. So there's a little bit of self-interest in here, um, but that's fine. I'm happy to have them. 
Yeah, well, that's right. They do have a keen awareness of all of this stuff. And Angela, with the last question, with Finland having a clear path to joining NATO, this seems to me to be strategically significant with regard to Russia. Is it? And are the Russians concerned about it or are they playing it down? So I think it's very important. They have a very long border. The Finns remember how they were invaded by the Soviet Union. And even though they fought back in the end, the Soviet Union took some of their territory uh, during World War II. And it really, it makes, a, it makes a major difference that Finland will no longer be a neutral country. And presumably at some point, Sweden will also get in. So it really changes the whole dynamic in that part of Europe. Putin so far has sort of played down Finnish and Swedish membership. He said, well, you know, it really doesn't matter, as opposed to, for instance, Ukrainian membership of NATO. But when you talk to the Finns, the Russians have been doing, you know, what they do all over Europe and other parts of the world, disinformation campaigns, you know, and various other things to try and rouse public opposition to this, which if it doesn't exist. I mean, the Finns are very much in favor of this. So again, going forward, Putin has now created a less secure environment for Russia by uh, launching this invasion of Ukraine. No question about it. It can't be said often enough. Russia went into this war to deny NATO Ukraine, to weaken NATO's hold on Europe, to strengthen his hold on Europe and internationally. And so far, at least, and it looks like for long after this war, NATO will be bigger, better funded stronger, more unified, have a clearer sense of purpose, and will be complemented by active, much more active engagement from partners in the Pacific and elsewhere. And so this is Putin doing something costly, damaging, that is going to have exactly the opposite effect that he wanted. In any event, we are delighted that we could have this conversation, even with Corey off in the airport, although I thought that the announcements in the background add a certain sense of urgency and drama to this podcast. And so I thank you, Corey. I thank you, Rosa. I thank you, Angela, very much. It's nice to see you. And uh, we'll be back continuing to discuss this because this is not going away anytime soon. And we'll be back with all our other usual podcasts. Although I would note that next week and the following week, there'll be slightly fewer podcasts than usual because we sort of head into spring break and people are off here and there. But there will be some. And if they're breaking stories, there will be even more than that. So we'll try to keep you satisfied with new material throughout the next couple of weeks. And then when we get back in the middle of April, there's going to be an expanded roster, perhaps as many as three new podcasts from us. So watch this space. Thanks to everybody for joining. And we'll be back again soon. Bye-bye.